prior to surgery, published in the February 2014 issue of NCP. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Robert Martindale, MD-PhD, Professor of Surgery, Chief of the Division of General Surgery, and the Hospital Director for Nutrition Services from the Oregon Health and Science University, Division of Trauma, Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery in Portland, Oregon. I'd like to start by asking Dr. Martindale if he has any disclosures on this topic that he'd like to share. No, no disclosures. Thank you. Dr. Martindale, as you all know, is an authority on the topic of surgical nutrition, and we're glad to have him share with us his expertise today. So thank you, Dr. Martindale, for joining me. No, no, thank you for inviting me. And as many of our readers and listeners uh, provide support to surgery patients, uh, your, your paper that comes out in February is a very important paper on nutrition support for surgical patients, and it's very timely. So I just want to explore some of the topics you discuss in your article. One of the things is you've been a well-known leader and authority in nutrition support for many years. Can you kind of summarize for our listeners some of the most important or significant changes that you've seen in surgical nutrition support practice uh, during your career? Sure. Uh, I think it's been, you know, I've been doing this for about 30 years, and I would say uh, when I started this 30 years ago, parental nutrition was king, and we've seen a dramatic and continuous decrease in the need for parental nutrition in the routine uh, surgical population. That's probably one of the bigger changes. We've seen the rise in the last 10 years of consistent data supporting the idea of metabolic and immune modulation in the surgical population. And also a consistent theme, which has really started in the early 80s and now continues, was the use of the gut, not so much even for calorie delivery, but as gut maintenance to protect from systemic uh, sepsis and things like that. Was if the gut maintains a healthy, if you maintain a healthy gut with early feeding, you can decrease your risk of infection through multiple mechanisms. Probably the most recent thing I've followed for the last four or five years, which to me is very exciting is the concept of maintaining muscle integrity through exercise, even in the sickest patients, putting exercise bed, little exercise machines in the beds and getting them out, walking them even while on ventilators, things like that, to me is very, very exciting for us in the nutrition world because we can combine nutrition with exercise and increase our protein intake dramatically. I noticed that a lot of the paper in NCP focused on preoperative nutrition. Why has our focus kind of changed to emphasize the preoperative nutrition, and so, and what are the main goals of providing nutrition support in that pre-op phase? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, I, I think we, for many years early in my career, as many others and my colleagues, it's a pretty small circle of people doing this area. I would say we used to emphasize post-op nutrition because the idea that we didn't have them pre-op. We didn't really understand that we could change things in the pre-op setting. And then came the paper by Mark Michael Brogger's group in 2001 and, and uh, 2002, basically showing that modulation was possible and we could lower infectious complications even in people who were well-nourished. 
So it wasn't just the malnourished albumin 1.5 guy you operate on that you pray to hold all the anastomosis together. It was now people with an albumin that were fine with very little weight loss that found to have a small lesion of the pancreas or esophagus or stomach. And now you're operating those people, and we actually could lower the infectious complications, decrease length of stay, decrease hospitalization in a population who was actually pretty well nourished. That was a completely new concept. I think that's really what we're pushing now is, you know, we, we're all aware in the nutrition world that, you know, somebody who's sick, we should all address it very early, as, as early as possible in the post-op setting. But now we've gone a step beyond that to say maybe even those people that are reasonably well-nourished, they're undergoing major surgery, now not just a routine, you know, hernia or right angle or, you know, right hemiglycomy or something, but people that are getting esophagus, pancreas, gastric, abdominal wall reconstruction, where we're anticipated in the ICU for a couple of days in the hospital for five to seven days, those patients we can now actually modulate the metabolic response to that surgery. I think that's why that we sort of emphasize preoperative preparation. I think your comment about feeding the well-nourished kind of leads me to the next question. Since there is a growing population of obese patients that we see in our practice, you even mentioned in your paper that it's just as important to recognize obesity in the preoperative nutrition assessment as those who are underweight or, or malnourished. So what, why is that particularly an important point? I, I think two main reasons here. One is that the average physician looks at an obese population as, oh, we don't need to worry about nutrition of this patient. When, in fact, sarcopenic obesity or obesity without much lean body tissue left is a very high-risk population. That's a population who, if you, they're on the edge. And so if we don't address their lean body tissue in the preoperative and perioperative period very early, if they were walking pre-op, they may not be able to walk post-op. They may not be able to generate a good cough because they've lost that little bit of muscle that's keeping them going. So sarcopenic obesity, to me, is a huge issue, and we really need to pay more attention to which patients are sarcopenic and which ones aren't. I think there's been two very nice sets of literature that really supports us here. One is the literature showing that, in fact, if you do cross-sectional CT scans, and all these people, of course, are getting most of them are getting cancer workups, so they all have this, cross-sectional CT scans showing sarcopenia by using a ratio of the intra-abdominal fat to the lean body tissue ratio, the best predictor of outcome literally better than any biochemical test, any physical exam test, and looking at major pancreatic surgery now and in colorectal surgery, the best predictor is that ratio of lean body tissue to fat mass. And if you have very little lean body tissue, your outcome parameters for a major surgery are significantly affected and decreased. And that's one. The other one is we know that obesity is an inflammatory disease. So if you have a patient who's already in an inflammatory state and we do a big metabolic insult, which causes more inflammation, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. I mean, we're setting them up to more inflammation, more prolonged stay, longer days on the ventilator, more days in the ICU, that sort of problem. I think that kind of shows that we do need to consider early interval feeding in a lot of these patients. And, and, you, and you mentioned that in your paper, not only postoperative but the preoperative. But you also talked about common barriers that prevent that early feeding from happening. So in, in Table 1, you talked about there's a lack of understanding of the benefits of early interval nutrition or a lack of understanding what post-operative illness is, concerns that people may have or complications associated with early interval feeding, the inability to place tubes sometimes by some practitioners at the bedside, concern about feeding in the presence of pressors, and a lack of team communication. So what methods or processes have you been able to use in your practice to successfully overcome some of those obstacles? I think the first 
big issue is getting a, a team approach, is getting an education across the entire team. The dietitians and, and some physicians are aware and interested and, and know the understanding we can feed post-op day one and we don't have to wait for your lease. But that's been a, a long educational point of view, to educate surgeons to the fact that you can feed post-op day one even when patients haven't proven bowel sounds or they don't have motility, et cetera. And that's still coming, although most surgeons now are aware, most newly trained people are aware that we can feed early. The other big thing is the nurses. If the nurses understand why we're feeding early and that it's actually safe and actually better for the patient, they will be your best advocate. So I think that's one thing which we've done here. So now we're reminded sometimes on rounds when we get a million things on our mind, the nurses will say, hey, what about the probiotic protocol? Hey, what about the early interval feeding protocol after you've discussed that patient on rounds? Because the nurses are the best advocate. They're the ones sitting at the bedside for 12 hours. And so they're the ones that can, you know, say, hey, wait a minute, what are we doing for nutrition here? So once you win them over, then it becomes a piece of cake. And then you can implement protocols. And to me, the single biggest factor which will accelerate ongoing nutritional support and active, aggressive nutritional support is a protocol. So the patient doesn't have to wait for the physician to remember to write, oh, yeah, let's start early feeding. It's part of the admission protocol. When the patient's admitted to the hospital, they're admitted to the ICU, they're sitting there and they're said, ICU feeding protocol, and so it's automatic, and you have to actually write an order, do not feed, so they're fed until the, someone says do not feed. I mean, the protocol is beginning. It's like the ball starts rolling when they get admitted, so then we start preparing, we get the food up, we get the feeding tube in place, all those sort of things. So I think once you make it automatic, it becomes very easy. And that's probably our biggest factor overcoming things. The team, really awareness, increasing awareness, but that takes some time. I mean, I, for example, in my own experience, when I moved from the Medical College of Georgia to Oregon Health Sciences, I got here, and there was really no organized big team. There was a bunch of people doing nutrition, really no organized team. So we got the team organized. We started offering in-services to nurses, to physicians, to all the different subspecialists who admit to the ICU. And now I have to say it's automatic. I mean, it rarely requires someone to say, hey, what happened to nutrition in this patient? It started when you come in the morning, the next morning after Whipple, for example. There's a tube in place and people are dripping things in. I think that's valuable information for people who are trying to get themselves organized and get protocols in place. So, Dr. Martindale, I'm, I'm intrigued particularly by two topics in your article. You talked about carbohydrate loading and interoperative feeding. So let's talk first about the carb loading. I think we're familiar with the benefits of carb loading in athletes, but not as aware of those techniques and benefits of carbohydrate loading in surgical patients. So what's the rationale for carb loading in surgery patients, and, and how do we achieve that? Uh, yeah, Jenna, this is a great question. You know, I think it's very similar to really what does go on in athletes. If you think about a major surgical intervention, it's pretty much a stress response similar to would be in marathon run. So the concept started along the same physiologic ideas, that if you can maximally load the carbohydrate in the muscle, the myocardium, and the liver prior to an insult, you then could burn carbohydrate the first couple of hours anyway. Because currently what goes on in a normal setting is a patient's NPO after midnight. So they come in in the morning after a psychological stress for an operation, and they virtually burn most of their, their carbohydrate reserves. Their muscle is pretty much empty of carbohydrate reserve, their liver is gone, and their myocardium is pretty much empty. We know that from multiple studies showing biopsy-proven studies where there's less than 10, 15% of your glycogen storage gone. 
So the idea of giving 800 cc's at midnight or sometime before you go to bed of an isotonic carbohydrate solution, and then three hours pre-op giving an isotonic carbohydrate solution, which empties the stomach usually within an hour, if you give that 300 cc's, then you have maximally load the carbohydrate in the liver as glycogen, the liver, the muscle, and the myocardium. So now you make an incision on the patient, and now instead of immediately going to lean body tissue burn, because remember, during times of stress, when insulin levels are raised, we don't burn fat as well as we should in a stressed model because the insulin levels are up during stress. So if we can now burn carbohydrate the first couple hours of the surgical stress, we protect our lean body mass and thereby burn less lean body mass. And that's been well shown in several studies. But even more exciting is the recent data that's coming out, in, in the, which has been published in Annals of Surgery in very high-quality journals, has shown we decrease the insulin resistance by up to 50% in the post-op setting by doing carbo-loading. And this works through multiple mechanisms, most of them acting at the mitochondrial level, but several acting through the metabolic cascade and pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase and mitochondrial pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase. And now it may even be that it's optimal to give amino acids as well as carbohydrate in that solution. So I think that's a coming idea. Now, in, in Europe now, we have solutions that are ready. In this country, we're just starting to see those solutions come in, where they're isotonic, ready to go. Patients just drink them, don't have to mix their own. So I think this is an area which is very simple, very inexpensive, I mean, literally pennies to do, and the patient can have better outcomes in their surgery and certainly less insulin resistance. Let's talk about that second one, then, the intraoperative feeding. I mean, you mentioned how so many times patients are NPO at midnight for any type of surgery or procedure the next day. So what's the basis for the interoperative feeding, and, and, and what patients should we consider using this? Yeah, this is area. This one's still a little bit more controversial. It's brought up because I think this is an area where we we now what happens, especially in these patients who lay around the hospital, like with trauma, for example, when they're NPO after midnight, then somebody gets bumped in the morning or something changes, so they end up 12, 15 hours NPO. Then they get one meal. The next day they're on again, and those kind of problems we lose so much active time for nutrition support. So the thoughts are that if a patient is getting non-visceral surgery, so they're not going to open their belly, which obviously is something you don't want a full stomach or full GI tract full, like a burn debris, multiple debridements in a burn, or orthopedic surgery where they're going to go back for the, you know, the fracture fixation the next day or things like that, there's really no reason to stop the feeding for 12 hours pre-op. So we have now some early studies showing it's perfectly safe to, as long as the feeding tube is in the right place, to feed them through the surgery, especially those patients that are intubated in the ICU where we're protected by a cuff in the trachea. And again, the, the metabolic response, if you're feeding, you maintain gut integrity, you increase amino acid absorption. So there's lots of, but again, this is a little bit more speculative. We don't have hard science yet with big multi-center trials showing benefits. So that's a little bit more on the on the future trends idea. We also talked, Dr. Martindale, about immunonutrition and supplementation with specific nutrients such as fish oil and arginine. So for our listeners, what is the take-home message with regards to immunonutrition? In other words, what are the benefits, what and how should we use the special nutrients, and what are the circumstances where we should not be using immunonutrition? 
Another good question. Uh, I think that, you know, immune nutrition over the years has kind of come up and down and up and down, and we've gone back and forth. I think there is no question that the fish oil data is very solid, consistently across the board. Although we've seen a few shots across the bow that maybe in ARDS it's not so critical by the way you feed, may depend, the action may depend on whether it's fed continuously versus bolus. So there's still some questions that need to be answered. But across the board, I think that uniformly most people would argue that, in fact, the use of fish oils lowers the metabolic response and decreases inflammation. There's some very nice work done in 2012 and 13 on, on nice prospective trials, blinded trials in cardiac surgery and GI surgery and orthopedic surgery that shows we can lower the metabolic response. So I think that's the biggest issue there, that inflammation is associated with poor outcome, the high inflammation, and if we can lower that inflammation, we'll have better outcomes. That's sort of the principle, and I think that's been consistent over the last 20 years, getting more and more data to support it. Although, given, for example, in the RDS, it's just a little confusing because we had two papers in 2012 showing maybe maybe they're not so valuable. But again, we have to look at the populations they were used in and the way it was fed, so, but it, the trends are that it's beneficial. The arginine data is also very exciting to me. We now know that arginine is key in maintaining a normal immune response, and it's key for the lymphocyte receptor complex to be sort of prepare itself for a metabolic response and upregulation of the immune response to have adequate arginine, mainly through the T-cell receptor complex, which has an arginine requirement. Some nice work, again, published in 2013 by several groups, and the Annals of Surgery just recently had a nice review on this. So I think we've got the fish oils mainly through its anti-inflammatory model and, and increasing perfusion, and the arginine mainly through maintaining immune response and increasing perfusion. There was a little bit of data, not data, I should say there was a little bit of speculation, which was a very reasonable speculation, that maybe arginine has trouble in a hypotensive septic patient. Maybe we shouldn't give a vasodilating substance to a population who's hypotensive. And I think that has fallen away. We don't have data to support that. We've got adequate data. In fact, in, there are six papers published in the last two years giving arginine to septic patients, those very ones that was some question about, showing increased perfusion, better arginine, asymmetric dimethyl arginine ratios, which is a whole other issue we're going to talk about today. So I think we've now got adequate data that arginine is perfectly safe even in the septic patient, in fact, maybe the sepsis is deficient, but certainly in the pre-op setting where we know that arginine is important for wound healing, for immune function, and for vasodilatation to poorly perfused tissue beds. So I think we, and so who should not get it? Well, I think we don't need to give it to people that are getting minor surgery. I think getting, you know, a hernia repair or some minor surgery going to be in a day and out for a day, probably don't need it. The body's response will be fine. We should focus our, our attention to the sicker patients, so the patients we know have a hyperdynamic response to surgery, or those who come in hyperdynamic already had one insult which has caused it, and try to diffuse that increased inflammatory response. You've given us lots of great pearls, Dr. Martindale. So kind of as we start to wrap up our podcast, can you tell our listeners about they as nutrition support practitioners, how they can help drive practice as you define in your paper? Yeah, if I had one thing to say, I would say it's team education and protocols. I think that's the two biggest things which I have found over the 30 years of sometimes beating my head against the wall trying to figure out why aren't people listening, you know, why don't they care about nutrition. 
you know, we were sort of the bastard stepchild of, of ICU care, you know. But I think now, even if by the number of people that are interested in nutrition stuff, we're showing nutrition is just as good as any of the best drugs we've got. And now we've got data. You know, for 15 years of my career, I've tried to get people to believe me. And they go, yeah, yeah, oh, that's nice. Okay, thanks, Dr. Martin. You know, and then they just do what they're going to do. But the last 10 years, now we've got human data showing decreased mortality. It's hard to argue with that. I mean, you can't, if you've got good quality data with 4,000 patients studies that shows you could lower mortality by feeding within 48 hours, you can't argue with that data. I mean, it's good, solid data. So I think we now have the data to back up our claims that we should be aggressive with nutrition. And the best way i found to do that is have protocols. Before we wrap up, Dr. Martin Diller, are there any other issues or topics that you want to address with our listeners? Not really. I think I would keep an eye open, ask them to keep an eye open for the data showing that the combination of nutrition plus muscle activity, to me, that's very exciting. In JAMA this year, JAMA just a few months ago, Journal of American Medical Association, they had a superb article on the effects of inflammation in the muscle and how exercise in the ICU can lower that inflammation. And they showed a nice correlation between the amount of inflammation in the muscle and the, whether the patient has multiple organ failure or single organ failure. I think to me, the next five or six years, we're going to see a tremendous amount of data on showing how we can decrease that inflammation and modulate the mitochondria. Thank you so much, Dr. Martindale, for sharing your expertise today with all of our listeners. I want to invite our readers and our listeners to find out more about this topic in the article by Drs. Evans, Martindale, Corrali, and Jones in the February 2014 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jeanette.